you got a fast car Is it fast enough so we can fly away? You gotta make a decision Leave tonight or live and die this way So I remember when we were driving Driving in your car Speed so fast it felt like I was drunk City lights day out before us And your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder And I, I had a feeling that I belonged Someone, be someone. On this day, 35 years ago today, Tracy Chapman's self-titled debut album races to number one in the US. The album is one of the great singer-songwriter albums in any decade and in any genre. A masterpiece, writes Josh Treberg in Pop Matters. With songs like this, and Give Me One Reason, Baby Can I Hold You, Tracy Chapman made a large impact. And speaking of Mandela, Tracy Chapman performed Fast Car, this song here, at the Nelson Mandela 70th Birthday Tribute Concert at Wembley. Tracy Chapman is very media shy. She doesn't do many interviews at all, but I had the pleasure of having a long interview with Tracy Chapman in 2016 on RNZ and that interview is still online uh, if you search for it um, there's something about her voice her style, her music Ian Powell that really transcends time, doesn't it? Uh, yes it does uh, certainly uh, and I've heard that song many times um, well quite a lot and uh, often when I've been driving the car myself actually in terms of some of the lyrics there. Yeah, yeah no, it, um, it's quite, it's very enticing. Yeah, very, very cool indeed. Uh, we have Sarah Sparks, Ian Powell, with me today, and I cannot wait. I just can't wait to tell you and talk with you about the show and town today uh, at 4.50. Here's one. Uh, I've got a kangling, a Tibetan flute, which is sterling silver, and human leg bone. It was used to play at funerals to summon the demons and then placate them. It was usually made using a bone from a high-ranking monk or a criminal, says Liz. Uh, we have got many, many wonderful responses about something special in your cupboard, your wardrobe, on the mantelpiece, on the wall, something special that you can tell us about. The panel, show and tell, this afternoon at 10 to 5. Text me 2101 or email the panel at rnz.co.nz. Well, the shortage of doctors in Palmerston North's hospital's emergency department has become so extreme that Dr David Priss, clinical lead at Palmerston North's ED, told health executives his hospital is, quote, at serious risk of being unable to provide an emergency medicine service, the New Zealand Herald reported today. The emergency department is so understaffed that on six occasions in the past few weeks, it had no junior doctors rostered overnight, according to internal documents. How has it got to this? Imagine being a patient, imagine being a staff member with us, Dr. Kate Allen, spokeswoman for the Australasian College of Emergency Medicine, also an emergency physician in Tamaki Makoto. Dr. Allen, welcome. 
Thank you. Welcome. Hello. Yeah, good to have you here, Kate. At risk of being unable to provide an emergency medicine services. Those are Dr. Prisk's words. That would be cause for grave concern, I imagine. I think that sounds a bit scary, hey? Um, Look, if people can't get the urgent health care they need when they need it and where they need it, then that's a huge concern. And it's not just happening in Palmerston, it's happening across the whole country. So there are similar situations equally grave in other hospitals? Yes, there is. I I do hear from a lot of colleagues that there are lots of departments struggling for staff to staff their departments or departments are working short. The unfortunate reality, well, I suppose it's fortunate as well for emergency medicine, is that we don't close our doors. Um, And so we really have to work with what we have and that can sometimes lead to quite um, concerning conditions that we work in. Let's go round the panel on this. Sarah, starting with you. Yeah, I mean, I'm concerned uh, and have been concerned for some time. And I did a bit of research into this, looking at the numbers. And and, um, I see that there was a data dashboard um, that the Medical Council of New Zealand released um, last week, actually, on the 23rd of August, saying that there were 19,000 doctors uh, or just over 19,000 doctors in, in New Zealand. And then I was trying to find out, well, where are they all? And then I saw on, because, <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking uh, from a strategic point of view, where are the hotspots, where are the numbers, can there be sort of mobilisation to help those areas that are obviously under the pump um, and making that sort of big picture decision-making. And then I went on to Fatsu Order, and they do have, uh, they, they have data about where senior medical officers how many there are in regions, um, but it's it's a percentile. You don't actually know the numbers. So I'm still a bit flummoxed about what the data is telling us, to, you know, from a decision-making perspective. You might have more information about that uh, and also about how collectively the system operates when this is happening because it can't be siloed because ultimately patients are going to be impacted. Yeah, and I think this is the real challenge. So the data dashboard, um, I'm not uh, I'm involved with medical counsel, but I think it's a, it's a progressive step and it's showing open data. Um, the problem with it is it's showing the number of doctors that are registered, not those that are actively working. Um, so that's just that's just one side to notice, that, that, that it, it will show how many doctors are registered within the system, not those that are all working or whether they're part-time or full-time, and there's quite a bit of nuance there as well. Mm. But, you know, look, as well as for sharing resources, it's really difficult because there simply isn't enough staff to go around. And and even the bigger centres who have many more doctors than the smaller centres than the smaller areas or, or hospitals, we are also struggling with staff. And so it it's not palpable to actually send our team down there to help out or ask our team members if they can go down to help out because that actually impacts significantly on our already short workforce. So if we could share, we would, and, and that's definitely been considered, but it's not really the answer because everything's just too thin on the ground. Ian? Well, um, 
there'll be no difficulty, no, I guess, from where I'm coming from yeah. on this. But, uh, look, I was thinking, you know, it's, it's, you, you don't close the doors on the simple reasons that you mm. can't. It's not a matter of choice. Uh, and, um, incidentally, I think the Medical Council data also doesn't incl- probably doesn't break down according to locums as well, which is a different category. Mm. Um, but... I was just thinking back to meetings when I was in ASMS uh, with emergency medicine specialists at Hutt Hospital with their chief executive at the time in the the mid-2010s, and they were warning not so much about increasing numbers of people coming to ED, but the increasing numbers of those with more complex conditions Mm -hmm. and therefore requiring more time because they had greater needs. So I guess, and uh, we, despite best, and best endeavours, we could not get that through to the chief executive, which was a bit surprising because at the time it was uh, Ashley Bloomfield. But what struck me, what I'm curious about, Kate, is that whether what you are now facing is not so much that, but both, uh, increasing numbers full stop and increasing complexity of, the, of, of, of case complexity. Okay. Absolutely. Um, there is no doubt that there is increased complexity and our population is significantly ageing. And this means it's not so much that the impact on the emergency department, but it's the impact on the inpatient team mm. because the patients are staying in hospital longer. So that means the occupancy in the hospital is increasing and, and there lies our problem. These problems with the emergency department overcrowding, it's not to do with the staffing, but the emergency department overcrowding, are outside, they are outside of the emergency department. They're outside right. of our control because they are about flow through. And a lot of that has to do with the complexity um, and the age of our, of our population. Very interesting. Can I ask you, Kate, uh, give us an example. When you talk complexity, break it down for us. What might that look like? It's, it's a lot to do with not only the physical side or what yeah. people are coming in with physical unwellness, but it's also to do with social, the social situation. And there's been a lot of uh, pressure on people. Um, people aren't necessarily getting the care they need as quickly as they need in the community, or they're unable to access care in the community, so their chronic health conditions might deteriorate. Um, we're living longer, so that means our organs are older and... Um, and suffering from from medical conditions as well, and it just it means that people aren't coming in with just one simple problem that you identify, fix, and move oh. on. There's often many different problems that are all linked and may be part of the condition that they're presenting with, but it's much harder to unpick. And we're doing more, so we're investigating more, we're finding more, we've got a a lot more. Um, uh, um, things that we can use to help us investigate and find issues and that takes longer and and means we actually do end up finding more as well gosh sarah what a complicated issue this is this is almost like a whole well it is a whole society issue well it, it's like the Not perfect just it's like the yeah. perfect storm <laughs> right <laughs> the perfect storm in the system's being absolutely stress tested to the max i'm really interested to know like from the you you talk about the community like where does the community play a, you know community so, solutions play a part in alleviating some of the pressure uh, i've seen some good initiatives on the ground but i'm interested from your point of view you know what does that look like <laughs> To me, it looks like supporting patients who are discharged from hospital Mm -hmm. to be able to live um, or be well in the community. 
So it means that people are not lingering in hospital waiting because it's unsafe for them to go home or because we're waiting for the next thing to happen that needs to happen in the community. So it's about enabling those people to actually be discharged and safety netted outside of the hospital, outside of those acute beds to free up the beds. Um, it looks a little bit like bringing the whole of the community together, cultural support, um, doctors, nurses, physios, OTs. It's about, you know, it's multidisciplinary, mm. but doing it in the community rather than doing it in an inpatient mm. hospital setting. Very good. It's a different way of, of doing healthcare. I'd really. love to talk to you more and hopefully we can get you back again, Kate, but uh, I really appreciate your time this afternoon, Kia no worries. That's Kate Allen there, mm-hmm. uh, an emergency physician in Auckland, just explaining the quite complex scenarios that goes into the staffing and the situation involving just why some of our emergency departments are just at such a stretch. 15 away from five, the panel RNZ National. A new research from the University of Auckland has found that Mount Taranaki could erupt with little warning, maybe just a day or a week of seismic activity, then boom, for a volcano that hasn't stirred for 200 years, that's not much warning. With us is Associate Professor Phil Shane from the University of Auckland School of Environment. Shane, kia ora. Oh, good afternoon. It's lovely to have you on. I was so interested about this. The, the, my first thought was, you have got to be kidding. It looks extinct. I thought it was extinct, but seems not. No, um, um, we find with a lot of volcanoes around the world, sometimes even the ones that produce quite big eruptions, that often the local people in the area um, don't even know it's a volcano (laughs) until it actually erupts again. But uh, I mean, I'm sure most people realise Taranaki is a volcano, but but yes, um, based on its history, we have to be aware of um, its capability to... Um, erupt again and, and, and maybe disrupt, um, y- you know, uh, quite a large area. Let's bring in our panel straight in, Ian. Um, oh, scary. Um, I don't know really what to say. Uh, um, and um, these are one of the few sort of things that are happening in the world that aren't, as I understand it, linked to climate change. So I just find the whole thing... Scary, a bit overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell tell me about the uh, the notion of little warning. What does that mean? It means that it could erupt actually at any time, maybe in a day or in a hundred years. Yeah, um, we we our new work doesn't really forecast when um, an eruption would no. occur in the future. You, you, you can't really, at, at the moment, we don't really have knowledge or technology that allow us to forecast eruptions really anywhere. In the case of Mount Taranaki, because we haven't seen it um, erupt in the past, we needed to needed to get a feeling for what, what would likely happen in the future. So, so what we did is, uh, we looked at rocks from some older eruptions, and, and they represent sort of the the molten magma that came out of the volcano, the hot rock below the volcano. Um, when it's on its way up, um, crystals start to grow in this hot uh, magma, and and by looking at those, we were able to work out how long it takes for the hot molten magma 
to rise to the surface. And the sort of information we were getting for past eruptions was uh, as little as only a day or, or maybe a week. That's the length of time it took the new magma to rise to the surface and then erupt. So we, we sort of then on that basis sort of speculate that if that's representative, it means in future um, we might not get um, much of a warning. But, but but be aware that is the case for some volcanoes around the world. Um, you know, that won't be the first time something yeah. like that has happened. Sarah? Well, I'm Te Atewa, so uh, I'm interested. This is our maunga, mm. uh, and yeah. I, I'd like to know what, because uh, I was looking at your research around uh, Matsuranga Māori and what yeah. my whanaunga in Taranaki are saying, you know, and how you're using that, because I know for us that there are specific tohu and there's... there's uh, there's Purako knowledge around our maunga and whether that has been taken into consideration as part of your research and planning. Yeah, I'm part of a much um, larger group. This is a um, this work is really quite um, fresh and new. Um, it's it's part of a, a much larger project or program funded by um, um, MB. And that, that includes um, local groups in that part of the country and economists and, and various other people. I, I'm really just one smaller group where we were looking at the science behind um, uh, what's happened in past eruptions. But, but our much bigger program um, does include um, transferring that information um, to um, relevant people or people who are interested. That that certainly is all part of our research project, even though I personally don't get involved in that part. Mm. I mean, there must be 40 or more of us working on this project. Very interesting to have you here, uh, Phil, and uh, just highlighting the issue uh, of uh, not just Mount Taranaki, but other volcanoes as well, that um, that little warning uh, could is to be expected. Uh, Phil, kia ora. That's uh, Associate Professor Phil Shane from the University of Auckland School of Environment. Uh, Wallace, Wallace yeah. I was just thinking, I, I'm glad I heard this news today rather than a few days ago because I, the last few days I've driven around Mount Taranaki and been at a dog uh, competition at the base of it. Um, <laughs> um, uh, my, knees are, my knees are slightly wobbling in the studio. What, I was going well, to say, it's not going to blow tomorrow, but then I thought, well, is it? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, who, who knows? knows? That's, that's, that's it. You know, yeah. that's we're really talking about Papa Tuanuku. You never know. You got it, Sarah. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> um, regarding patient complexity, here's one uh, from a hospital. You take blood tests or x-rays. At my hospital, you commit the patient to at least another 40 minutes in the ED. In a tertiary centre, the same test commit the patient to at least 90 minutes more in the ED. Add CT scanning, ultrasound or similar, that patient stays for hours. The more complex the patient, the more investigations and the longer they occupy a bed in ED. Absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, I have been waiting for this moment. We have had such extraordinary feedback, emails regarding this. This cannot be the last of this. I'm calling it the panel show and tell. And I saw a piece in the, on the spin-off about a woman who bought a dinosaur egg on a whim, an 80 million-year-old dino egg at a local auction. And it got me thinking... 
Well, what do you have laying around the home that is pretty jolly special? Here's one. We have a block of melted pennies forged in the fires of the 1931 Napier earthquake. The tin is gone, but the pennies remain. With us now, we have Annette in Wellington. Kia ora, Annette. Hello, Wallace. Welcome to the panel's first show and tell. What do you have for us? Well, Wallace, I've got quite an exciting item. Um, although I've got no attribution apart from what my mother told me. Fair and enough. It's a small scarab beetle, an actual beetle, and it came from the tomb of Tutankhamun. And it was part of a necklace that was originally given to my great aunt by Lady Carnarvon. That's absolutely amazing. Can you tell us a little amazing. bit? Can you tell us a little bit more about it? I can. It's um, it's quite a small item. Um, it's just uh, maybe a centimetre long. It's sort of bronze underneath, goldy looking, and it's got sort of like a coppery look about it. So I can't believe it's been cast. It's just too fine with all the detail on the uh, back, and it's got a sort of bluey, bluey, coppery sort of look about the back of it. And the provenance, the provenance is important, isn't it? Because it was received as a gift from the wife of Howard Carter. And who was Howard Carter? But the British archaeologist who made one of the richest and most celebrated <laughs> contributions to Egyptology. Yeah, I found a piece of paper. In my, it was actually from Lady Carnarvon, who was the wife of the, uh, the person who funded Carter's work. Oh. Isn't that amazing, Sarah? And I have. Well, I, I've been to Egypt and actually tromped around on a camel in that area. Um, is it made of lapis? Cause the normal... No, no. I believe it's. It looks like it's an actual beetle. I, it so looks so delicate. I... I can't believe it was. It was formed, but it might have been. I don't know. One thing it's... I. Oh, one no thing legs. I. No legs. <laughs> I did find. I went into the museum in Cairo, and I recall seeing a fold-out bed dating back to that time with screws in it and hinges. Thinking how sophisticated that ancient civilization was. So, yeah. but I'm interested to know since, it, like, is it a good luck charm? Because Ooh. I always think that mm. when items are removed from an area that's sacred. You know, uh, what what does it, is it a harbinger of good? What does it signify? What does it signify mm. for you? How does it yes, feel? Do you, do you love it? Do you love it? Do cursed? You think it's cursed? No, I don't actually, but no. um, it's a, just a beautiful object. Oh, well, right. Annette, thank okay. you for sharing. That's so yes. cool. Uh, a scarab uh, beetle from the tomb wow. of Tutankhamun came through to Annette there through her grandmother, Mother used to string pearls, and the family story is actually received as a gift from the wife of Howard Carter, uh, Lady Carnarvon there. And with us now on the panel show and tell is Jackie. Kia ora, Jackie. How are you? Very well. Very. Well. I'm excited uh, for you to share to uh, a national audience what you have. This is pretty cool. Now, what is it? Right. Now, I have a teddy bear. That was made from the lining of the jacket from Sir Edmund Hillary's um, expedition to Antarctica. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? So my great aunt <coughs> worked in Dunedin, um, and she'll be 100 this year, and she made the jackets 
So she, as an offcut, she made it into a teddy bear for my mum and her siblings. A teddy bear Ian Powell made out of the inside of Sir Edmund Hillary's Antarctic Expedition Jacket. How about that? Well, I have nothing to match that. I do have a, a teddy bear that my father passed on to me, uh, which I've nice. still got and has gone on to grandchildren, uh, children, then grandchildren, which are still and still surviving, and called Blue Ted. Um, uh, in fact, at the moment, he's actually on my bookshelf. Um, but um, no, it didn't come from any of uh, Sir Ed's uh, clothing. I'm, I'm thinking, Jackie, um, is, is this mm. just in your home? Yes, yeah, I used to play with it when I was a child. <laughs> so I, I still have it now along with all my other teddy bears. I used to play schools and I called him Hillary. You call it, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, is yeah. this not the item that should be a tapapa? <laughs> Possibly, but it's quite special to us. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. so, that is so very cool. A teddy bear made out of the inside of Sir Ed's. And how did, how did, um, how did they come by way of uh, the jacket, actually? Because well, they made the jackets for the expedition. Oh, my goodness gracious me. Yeah. Well, mm. Jackie, thank you for that. Lovely to have, uh, to, share, uh, to have you share that with us. That's Jackie there and also and uh, a couple of others uh, that um, came through. Um, I have dinosaur eggs bought in China some 30 years ago. It measures 150 millimetres high by 120. was very heavy, bringing back in the hand luggage. Uh, I have a woolly hat knitted by Peter mm. Jackson's mother who made them for some crew on the film. It has the film's title of the time, Brain Dead, knitted into it. How about that? Pretty amazing, isn't it, Sarah, what people have? Kind of personal taonga. You know, little things can be very special to people. Absolutely. I was just thinking about Sir Edmund Hillary. I actually met him when I was a young PR pup many, many moons ago and helped launch one of his books here in Auckland and have the photo with his... Uh, of us together with a signature. That's my taonga. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Keep the panel show intels coming through email, the panel at rnz.co.nz. Uh, for now, though, Sarah Sparks, Ian Powell, Kia ora. Kia ora. Thanks for being with me. Yep. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint is next. I'm back tomorrow, 3.45. See you then. <laughs>